question. I think I guess I know something. Mm-hmm. One thing is <laughs> that is so jarring is how DOC never had a plan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Never had a plan. Which is why the American Civil Liberties Union took up a Uh, they filed a lawsuit for all the prisoners in the state of Minnesota and every other state that has been that were subjected. And you know, it doesn't matter if you caught COVID or not. It's the fact that the the people that were supposed to, because anybody that can't feed themselves, anybody that can't physically, you know, cook their own food and whatnot, that makes them a vulnerable adult. So every inmate in this, in anywhere, in any jail, any prison is a vulnerable adult. So their vulnerable adult means is that we can't physically take care of ourselves. We physically can't protect ourselves. Welcome to season two of Antipod, a radical geography podcast and sound collective. We bring radical people and collectives together so that we can share knowledge, ask new questions, and sustain frameworks and methods that are underrepresented in the discipline. Antipod is an inclusive and interdisciplinary space. We listen to each other together. My name is Carrie Freshour, and I'm here with co-host Asha Bess. This season, we've been talking about COVID-19, carceral spaces, and abolition. In the last episode, we heard from DeAndre and Theo about the spread of COVID in prisons and jails across the U.S. In this episode, we consider the spread of COVID-19 from a public health perspective. We'll hear from abolitionist organizers in Washington State and speak with Dr. Aaron Mallory, Assistant Professor of Geography and African American Studies at FSU. We think through a variety of public health responses and ask what this moment opens up for thinking about carcerality, responsibility, and abolition. Within the first few months of learning about the spread of COVID-19 in the U.S., some of the largest clusters of infection were cropping up at prisons and jails. Overcrowding and confined spaces, substandard sanitary conditions, and the incapacity of prisons to provide proper physical and mental care prior to the emergence of COVID-19 made incarcerated people all the more vulnerable to illness. While most public institutions were scrambling to respond to the emergence of the virus, we are attentive to the uneven response within prisons and jails months after the initial outbreak when CDC guidelines had been well established. It's difficult to understand why the DOC didn't at the very least implement the same public health measures that were recommended by the CDC, like physical distancing, mask wearing, and disinfection. And at the same time, it's nearly impossible to understand how they could. There was CARES Act funding for prisons, funding that provided $100 million, which could be used to provide PPE. But when and how those funds were distributed or the true cost of PPE in prisons, we don't know. Staff could have been required to wear masks or adhere to any requirements for mask wearing. Proper sanitation measures could have been implemented. But from what we learned, we don't get a sense that many of these steps were taken or ensured. We began this episode with a clip of our interview with the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe man who was incarcerated in Minnesota during the summer of 2020. 
He discusses a class action suit filed by the ACLU of Minnesota against the Minnesota Department of Corrections. The suit alleged that the Minnesota DOC had failed to put in place measures to stop or even slow the transmission of coronavirus and had therefore violated its legal obligation to protect the people in its custody from COVID-19. The ACLU described some of the ways that the DOC had failed to act. So there was no social distancing, no ventilation between rooms, a lack of cleaning for communal spaces like showers, and staff were really not wearing masks. The suit is later dismissed by the state. According to the ACLU and Prison Policy Initiative, as of June 22, 2020, three months after COVID-19 had been declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization, over 570 incarcerated people and 50 correctional staff had died, and most of the largest coronavirus outbreaks were in correctional facilities. The COVID Behind Bars Data Project by UCLA Law documents a range of responses by prisons and jails disaggregated by state with a few states increasing commutations and early release. But for many, the state and local response to COVID in prisons looked a lot like no response at all, or even negligence. We've learned that state DOCs can act independently of other states, so that the CDC guidelines are enacted to varying degrees. Additionally, commutations decisions around early release and clemency are made by state governors for people incarcerated within state DOCs. And for those inside Federal Bureau of Prisons, the president of the U.S. is the only person able to make that decision. In June of 2020, the ACLU and Prison Policy Initiative also looked at the actions each state had taken to protect both incarcerated people and staff from COVID-19. They published their findings in a report titled Failing Grades, States' Responses to COVID-19 in Jails and Prisons. They graded each state based on a range of information collected from individual Department of Corrections websites, like whether the Department of Corrections had provided testing and PPE to correctional staff and the incarcerated population, whether the state had reduced incarcerated populations in both local county jails and state prisons, whether a state's governor issued an executive order or the DOC issued a directive accelerating the release from state prisons of medically vulnerable individuals or those near the end of their sentence, whether the state provided transparent data on COVID-19 in the state prison system, and finally, the number of COVID-19-related deaths in state prisons. Some states did take measurable action. For example, Massachusetts, Michigan, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Vermont all provided testing of the population in state prisons. But based on the data reported in the months prior to June 2020, most states failed to respond to this emerging public health crisis. Maine, Colorado, and Oregon were among just a handful of states that barely passed the bar, receiving a grade of D minus. Free Them All Washington is an abolitionist group that coalesced in the early days of the pandemic. Free Them All, communicating with organizers inside, closely monitored Washington DOC's handling of COVID-19. The group provided an additional pressure point working with families of incarcerated people to demand some sort of accountable response to the outbreak. We spoke to them about their work and how Free Them All developed. Well, I think Don't be Free shy. Them All came about as like a community, um, community coming together. I mean, a lot of us have been doing the work are in relationship with each other and with folks inside. And when COVID hit, you know, we started COVID-19 visual aid with different work groups 
and one of the work groups was abolitionist public health. And I guess the bigger picture is what is an abolitionist working class response, anti-racist working class response to COVID-19? Because we knew like the writing was on the wall that this was like disaster capitalism taking this opportunity to push through their vision of the world and what does it mean for us to push through our vision. And the abolitionist public health was one of the work groups of COVID-19 initial aid. Yeah, we have been in community doing work with the Black Business Caucus, doing work with the Asian Pacific Islander Cultural Awareness Group, Master Group of Cultural, Native Circle. So we came together to knowing that our loved ones would be suffering from the COVID. Mm-hmm. Free the Mall goes on to describe the situation as COVID spread through Washington State prisons. I think I guess I know something. Mm-hmm. One thing is that is so jarring is how DOC never had a plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, never had a plan, mm-hmm. and yeah, the way they moved through COVID was so reactionary, mm-hmm. and. You know, our organizing, I feel like, you know, our collective organizing with other groups, with other people, was really about pushing against DOC, but really about saying, you need a fucking plan. Yeah. And the most sensible plan, the most sensible public health plan is decarceration. Because, you know, social distancing, six feet, whatever. And that was a sound plan. Right, which is happening now with the Blake decision, whatever. Yeah. But people's now there's a letter of the law that makes Blake decision okay, you know, as a as a reason to release people. Mm-hmm. But back then, when it was just people's lives, people might die from COVID. That wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That wasn't enough for them to make any kind of policy change. Mm-hmm. And that is how I feel like there was so many times I'm like. This is so unbelievable mm-hmm. that they are willing to let, like, what, 60% of the population mm-hmm. catch COVID, mm-hmm. have no clear protocol, have mm-hmm. no clear, like, command structure, drop, like, probably, we don't know how much they've dropped, but they've dropped a lot of money building mm-hmm. up these, like, you know, impromptu, like, um, medical units. Mm-hmm. And in a system that has been killing people, like just mm-hmm. on the basic like healthcare level, they have people, what seven people died in Monroe before COVID in that one year. I'm like, how are we trusting this system to take care of our loved ones? Mm-hmm. And the fact that they knew they fucked up but kept hiding it, I'm like, damn, this is so dirty. Like, it's a fucking pandemic. Washington DOC's COVID response has been to repurpose punitive practices that we've seen in the past. In Washington, organizers document the increased use of solitary confinement, also known as the whole, justified as medical isolation. Limited time for showers, yard time, and phone and video calls. And probably most difficult, limited contact with loved ones through the canceling of all family visits. We've also seen an increase in interstate and intrastate transfers, which seems to counter common sense understanding of COVID-19 spread. Additionally, because of COVID-related staff shortages, this also meant infrequent laundry days, understaffed kitchens with prisons serving undercooked and cold food, 
and less time outside of cells because of the limited number of correctional officers. Alongside punitive measures, we saw specific incidents of retaliation against incarcerated people's basic forms of survival. And just like think about Harold's case. Mm-hmm. You know, 270 days in the hole from not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After being severely beat yeah. and and receiving the infractions to boot. Yeah. Like, <laughs> not only are we going to beat you, but we're going to punish you because we beat you. And then we're going to lock you in a mm-hmm. small room for 270 plus days. Mm-hmm. And zero accountability. And these seals don't work. Not even us. an acknowledgement. Oh, Not yeah, even a like our bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Or fire the guy yeah. who beat you. Yeah. No, None no, of that. Nothing. That was a member of Free the Mall recounting an incident of retaliation against Harold, an elder black man incarcerated at Stafford Creek Correctional Center. Harold's case was investigated by the Office of Corrections Ombuds, an independent office meant to follow up on grievances inside. In theory, the Ombuds office is a go-between for families and Washington, D.O.C., responding to complaints made by people both inside and outside. In December 2020, the month of Harold's incident, Stafford Creek received 13 complaints, two prompted investigation on use of force and racial discrimination. In addition to Harold's case, on December 8th, community and family members prompted a second investigation when Jarrell Jackson, a black man incarcerated at Stafford Creek, was pepper sprayed at close range for not following orders to end a pre-approved and pre-scheduled video visitation call early. This led to a nonviolent standoff in one of the unit's day room between a multiracial group of incarcerated men and COs. The group of incarcerated men developed a list of demands around COVID conditions and treatment. Their demands are as follows. To one, honor all JPay visits. And JPay is the pay-per-use electronic messaging and video call service enabling communication between incarcerated people to people outside. Two, expand the time out to more than 45 minutes a day. Three, conduct regular mass COVID testing. Four, stop the use of pepper spray. And five, address the problem with the kitchen staff as a vector of disease and transmission. So in this prison, kitchen workers were some of the first people to be exposed and test positive while preparing food. And this resulted in people not feeling that the food was safe with impacts on their health and nutrition. Immediately following the nonviolent standoff, the prison's warden and staff sent a memo thanking the men for their ability to de-escalate the situation. DOC staff also began mass COVID testing. But only two days later, CEOs began picking out the people they identified as leaders of the standoff, placing them in so-called medical isolation and serving them with infraction. These are write-ups that can extend a prison sentence. Seven were placed in medical isolation, justified by staff as following COVID protocols. After being told in prior days, they tested negative for COVID-19. These individuals were denied showers, granted only 20 minutes outside of their cells each day, given only minimal access to JPay and phones, and received no medical attention for three straight days. They reported harassment by the same COs who had been present for the incident on December 8th, who were now overseeing their restrictive segregation. This group came to call themselves the Stafford Seven. Members of the Stafford Seven remained in administrative segregation for nearly a month. Five were charged with threatening staff in a group demonstration and impeding emergency personnel, and two were convicted, 
losing good time, receiving more time in the hole, and points on their custody score. One of the seven contracted COVID-19 while in segregation. And after the incident, six of the seven were transferred to other prisons. This is a common tactic to separate leaders. What we can see in the case of the Stafford Seven is an expanding punitive response against basic forms of survival as incarcerated people attempt to navigate COVID-19 for themselves inside. So in these early months of the pandemic, there was this momentary opening for state-led decarceration, releasing people already incarcerated and reducing the flow of people to prison. In reality, we saw a very different state response. Instead of a decarceral strategy, DOC actually re-implements punitive measures justified through an evolving COVID-19 protocol. But what's missing in all of this is that this is a public health crisis, and incarcerated people are part of the public. We reached out to geographer Dr. Aaron Mallory to get Aaron's thoughts on abolition and public health. We asked him what it would mean to start from a public health perspective. So I think at its core, public health is... is a side of recognizing that health impacts all facets of our lives and that the promotion of health begins way before there's any sign of disease or sickness. And we can do this at a population level in that if we act with groups of people and populations and trying to make sure they never reach those disease or illnesses, then that promotes individual health, community health, and ultimately society health. Um, And so at its core, uh, public health thinks through what are the ways that we can optimize health within the lives of individuals and groups of people, in work, in the places they live, um, and also other avenues of society in which they're interacting with others. Given what we know about public health, its goals and aims, we wanted to know how COVID-19 transforms or pushes our understanding of public health, especially when prisons are considered part of the public. Aaron expands upon Free Them All's concerns around the lack of any sort of health and mental health measures inside. Acknowledging that ultimately prisons are not meant to address the health of people locked inside at all. Yeah, this is really a question because I think ultimately, given prison abolition movements and the role of families, communities, and activists, and people who are invested and changing um, carcerality in this country, um, COVID, at a bare minimum, um, just illuminates what we already know about the inability of carceral systems to handle societal issues. And what becomes more apparent with COVID is that the inequalities within prison are that you can't repair that, they're unrepairable. And that it exposes deep cleavers that were already there, but that if, if there's any semblance of trying to help people within this situation, there's none, given that there's no structures within prison systems across the United States to address the health and well-being of people who are incarcerated, who are locked up. And, and I think it makes that argument even clearer. And I think when we bring a public health approach to, you know, COVID-19 and, you know, carcerality in this country, what you ultimately get is the ability to make moral judgments because health is a moral judgment ultimately in society. It varies depending on what era, community, and people. What what it means to be healthy has always been contested and challenged. 
Um, and ultimately, what help does is provide a situation to think of variants and deviants, people who lie outside of the norm, and the goals that get them to the median. So if bringing a public health lens to incarceration in prisons, what it ultimately does when you bring that there, it, it lets us know that this is outside the norm of what it means and what it, we need to have healthy individuals and healthy people in our society. But it recognizes that the impact of you know, carcerality is just beyond, is way beyond the, you know, just the fact of being incarcerated and put into a jail cell, that that lives with you forever. So that public health lens shows like how long COVID exists long after, you know, the COVID diagnosis, and then you're ultimately getting over COVID. Similarly, the, the, the construction within prisons, it lives with you way beyond the actual fact of your your incarceration or your jail. And I think what public health allows us to do is to make a moral judgment behind health, which is mobilized for so many different ends in our society. Um, so, you know, we think of like diet culture and how the keto diet is seen to be healthy or plant-based diet is seen to be healthy um, and how that changes every couple of years, depending on what fat is in or out. But ultimately through you know, your access to food and the way you represent and present it, you can make a moral argument. So for people who are plant-based, you can make a moral argument that being plant-based better situates you to do something for the world. Um, and I think what public health realizes is that they want to mobilize health in ways that alters, you know, basically how the social and, and the of, of people coming together um, as it relates to health concerns or, or illness and everything. So I, I think there's a, a strategic and I think it's really good to think of it through a public health lens because we're allowed to make these moral judgments through varying like ways we understand health and how ultimately that impacts, you know, ultimately what we need is, you know, the end of incarceration and jails within this country. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think COVID-19 ultimately speaks to the failure of pub of of health of health to be administered or even defined or be a site of something that people need within uh, prison jails and other forms of incarceration in society. For some in the public health profession, COVID really magnified the problem of mass incarceration as a public health crisis. Just last October, the American Public Health Association, the APHA, held their annual meeting, gathering virtually. During this professional conference of the largest public health professional organization in the U.S., representatives would vote on a statement proposal entitled, Advancing Public Health Interventions to Address the Harms of the Carceral System. Approval of evidence-based statements like this one informs APHA's policy agenda for the year. In short, this statement outlined the health consequences of incarceration and instead promoted alternatives towards an abolitionist future of public health and well-being. Authors of the statement lean heavily on the ideas and writing of Ruth Wilson Gilmore and call for the need to build life-affirming institutions. They see public health as central to this agenda. More than an empty statement, the document became a starting place for abolitionist organizing among public health professionals, with co-authors sharing information, organizing Zoom meetings, and gaining mass support. The APHA permanently adopted the policy with majority support, that's 86%, from its governing council members. Major recommendations include decarceration, divestment from carceral systems and investment in social determinants of health, 
committing to non-carceral measures for accountability, safety, and well-being aligned with survivors' justice goals and decriminalization. Erin, I think lots of a lot of what you're saying is um, picking up on different debates and conversations that um, public health officials are having, um, and uh, we've heard and we've read. Um, a couple of pushes around uh, folks making pushes around decarceration as a public health response, as a potential public health measure. Um, can you speak a little bit about this and, and your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's important to frame public health as also a political project. In that, a lot of what we deem to be a public health intervention still has to be in, like enacted through policy measures. You need the public in terms as a political body to press politicians. So in and of itself, public health as on its own is still benefiting state institutions, which have a limited definition of who the public is or those who need to be protected, right? And when we talk about a public health lens, that altruistic or utilitarian ideas a lot bigger than the actual play out. So when we talk about the politics of public health, we get the CDC that can't tell us directly what we do, we need to do to protect one another, or they go against guidance, or they listen to the, you know, the corporate sector versus what's actually needed for public. And I think that distinction between actual politics and public health really creates what seems to me be like an almost insurmountable hill to climb because you not only need politicians who know about public health, but you also need politicians who are willing to act on public health. And so calling for decarceration is saying that we have a moral obligation to decarcerate as a, as a way of impacting the public health of everybody. And hopefully that gets politicians on board because obviously the health of individuals who are incarcerated isn't enough for us to make changes. So we want to say that, you know, somebody who's incarcerated doing a sentence, that isn't enough. The health of that person isn't enough. So when we talk about public health, we talk about the community they come from. We call about we talk about the the social situations in which you have guards, you have wardens, you have administrators interacting with populations who may be sick or disease. And so the idea behind that is that decarceration benefits a community or a population just beyond people who are just incarcerated as a moral argument, hopefully, that allows politicians to decarcerate. Now, the real question is, is that really abolition, given that it isn't prisoners, those incarcerated, leading the forefront? Um, and can we legislate our way out of prisons? And I don't think so. I think, you know, ultimately, you know, if you look at the Attica uprising, one of the key demands of the Attica uprising was access to health. You know, and the the weird part that really gets me with like the Attica uprising in New York was that folks weren't trying to escape like that. They just wanted dignity while serving time and they wanted education. They wanted, you know, they wanted they wanted they wanted the institution to reflect the social arrangements they had among themselves and have that become a center. And part of that was health, saying that we're not healthy here because we don't have access to these things to become the better people that we want to be. And so we're going to take over this prison and we're going to demand that we at least have this as a basic fundamental right for us. Um, and, and I think that demand is different than public health 
who's on the outside, who very much historically has been part of incarcerating people in various ways, to now ask for, you know, decarceration um, because, you know, I'm not sure, and I, and I think this is a larger conversation, whether or not we can legislate our way out of incarceration. Because I think the demands coming from people actually incarcerated look a lot different than a public health person. Um, because if you're already meeting the needs, and I think this is an important conversation to be having, like what are the ways that people who are incarcerated are handling COVID themselves? What care are they giving each other when one gets sick? How are ways are they mitigating the impact of the epidemic on the inside? What are some of the safety measures they're taking um, within there? And I feel the fact that we don't know a lot about this um, tells us we still have a one-way approach of looking um, at the role of COVID um, as a health is within prisons because we're not listening to the very populations who have to live with it. So I think public health's call for decarcerization and decriminalization in some aspects, um, I think it has to start with the people who are very much impacted with that. And what does that look like on a realistic basis? Because, you know, legislation takes years, but in that meantime, we still have to survive. And what does it mean to support the activities already ongoing within prisons that may be outside of what public health thinks to be the acceptable measure, uh, acceptable, um, what's it called, measure or outcome or the intervention? Because that happens a lot. Like, you know, communities may be here, but public health is there and thinking, but their thinking is always against the norm because the study of statistics ultimately, and that's really what my research looks at, is creating a norm and anything outside of the norm, you want to bring it back to the center. Um, and that process of bringing those that you deem outside of the norm into the center where people are at, um, that's really fraught with a lot of things, the only a limited amount of people able to get in. Um, so I'm interested you know, what are the calls within prisons among people who are incarcerated for decarceration? And what are some of the ways they're addressing their own health issues without state intervention, ultimately? Aaron's response here reminds me of another interview Theo and DeAndre shared with us last episode with DeAndre's cousin. He described the sort of DIY protocols incarcerated people created for themselves in lieu of staff attention to COVID spread, cleaning his own cell, reusing gloves and masks, and repurposing things to create makeshift masks. There, right now, there is this um, organizing around um, a, a person who was who died by the hands of DOC by medical negligence. And one of the family's demands is that um, incarcerated people can receive training so that they can take care of each other when these kinds of things happen. So there was like a um, hypoglycemic, I don't know the technical medical term, but he went into shock basically. And, and, and his friends who have tests, like have written the family and shared their experience. They were like, yeah, we could have, we, we knew that he needed food, but we didn't have anything. And the medical people who came in didn't even, they tried to do CPR, like that kind of thing. And he really needed a piece of candy. Um, and then there've been movements by like, um, groups inside to, to try to learn, like basic CPR and things like that. And, and DOC won't hear it here. At least they're not like, no, that's not allowed, you know? And so like thinking in response to COVID. Yeah. I think that's such an important question that you're raising. Like what are folks inside doing to take care of each other? And what's the distance between public health sort of official statements and um, proclamations versus like how, how they're actually being informed by people inside or not. 
we don't actually, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, cause I think there's two things. I think the, the first thing is, so there's a gap between the altruistic aims of public health versus how it's actually played out. And I think about our urban planning as a good example, like, the amount of like radical urban planners that go to UCLA and USC talking about change and stuff in SoCal, they're everywhere. You you go to you go to like any type of activist kind of event, there's an urban planner there who's like, I got this and I got this. And but they're not the ones like in Lori Lightfoot's ear, in Eric Garcetti's ear, in Gavin Newsom's ear being like, yo, bro, don't be doing that. Or Lori Lightfoot, yo, Chicago don't need that. They're not in the ears. So I think. Oftentimes, the younger generations or the people who are outside of the actual people who make those urban planning decisions are way more radical. But the question is, are we seeking inclusion into this like into this great program of modernity, which is urban planning? And similar public health, the same thing. Are we seeking input into this great modernity project Um, or are we trying to build something different? And I think. The one thing that like starting abolition from people who are incarcerated when we think about health or even planning, to be honest, you could if you start from incarceration. What you realize is that at its core and the stories you brought up about, you know, COs and people not allowing intervention um, speaks to incarceration as being still a technology of the denial of kinship or the denial of people coming together and self-determining what they want. Because that's ultimately what slavery was. You know, for me at least, it was denying kinship, you know, and forcing a top-down understanding of human relations or relations upon bodies based on phenotype. And similarly, this also is a dispossession of your access to yourself, which then brings in settler colonial aspects of like land, but then land also is a metaphor that you don't have access over where your body wants to be in place. So you have these twin kind of relationships that ultimately lead to a lack of kinship, in particular, how they could have intervened. And that's a that comes from your experiences being with somebody intimately and be like, yo, I know what this person needs. And if they're having an episode that's tied to like blood sugar and you know they need sugar in their system, and you're not being allowed to intervene because a a CEO or a warden or a medical professional has way more say, then where's the public health? Public health should be with intimate within what you get. So I, I think the so I think oftentimes how public health is mobilized, oftentimes it, it's a disallow of those relationships that are actually happening. And that's my only worry about kind of which I pointed to off the mic about. Um, the American Public Health Association's embracing of abolition. But one of the things they're not embracing are the ways that communities already address these things. In this episode, we took a look back at the uneven public health response across state institutions, including the punitive response of the Washington State Department of Corrections. We sit with abolitionist organizers from Free Them All and health geographer Dr. Aaron Mallory to ask how a public health perspective on COVID-19 in prisons might open up pressure points for decarceration and abolitionist futures. Yet Aaron reminds us of the limits to a public health framework that does not start from the demands of incarcerated people. What are their demands? And can we legislate our way out of prisons? 
I think we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Antipod. As always, you can find more information in the show notes, including links to resources referenced here. Thanks for your listenership. Until next time. Thank you.